Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show. Consultations on quality have closed this week. We'll review what the sector's been saying. There's also a new review of blended learning, some new reports on disabled students, and how do we fulfil demand for HE over the next decade? It's all coming up. We are absolutely crazy to do what we're doing, which is effectively giving politicians a loaded gun to shoot ourselves with. Because... That is what student number caps do. Politicians want, as we know, to limit the costs of the system. They think some of them that too many people go to higher education. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's going on this week. As usual, three terrific guests. Uh, in Haddenham, in Buckinghamshire, Nick Hillman is Director of the Higher Education Policy Institute. Nick, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, good morning. Well, I think the highlight has got to be Nazanin being freed from, from Iran. Um, I mean, it's just been wonderful to see, uh, particularly her daughter getting her mother back. Um, in HE terms, I've also loved seeing all the photos on Twitter of these graduations that couldn't happen during COVID finally taking place. Um, some really large graduation ceremonies which have been uh, uh, exhilarating to see as well. Great stuff. And in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, Kate Wicklow is Policy Manager at Guild HE. Kate, your highlight of the week, please. Like Nick, I think it's been incredibly exciting to hear that Nazanin has come back into the UK. I think that's been a long time coming. Um, but for me, um, I received my letter to attend my graduation ceremony in July, which was very exciting um, and also finally submitting 20 plus thousand words of consultation to the OFS today uh, was also pretty good. Ah, excellent stuff. And in Blackburn in Lancashire, Debbie McVitie is Wonky's Associate Editor. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Um, well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been, uh, Team Wonky has been uh, helping to coordinate a series of events looking at the future of uh, career support in, uh, in partnership with uh, Handshake and um, we've been having some really fantastic interesting conversations all around the country and I got to do the London one yesterday so that was super fun. Brilliant stuff so yes we start this week with quality sector bodies have been signalling their responses to the consultation on the TEF and minimum outcomes Kate what was the sector saying? Um, well, I think broadly we were um, had quite a number of things which we all agreed on, um, really kind of focusing on a, a few issues. So things like the life, um, the lifelong loan entitlement has a potential to change absolutely everything. So whilst this is happening at the moment, that's very helpful. But actually, uh, we need to think about a, a longer term strategy um, for how we manage data and quality in higher education based around a lot of those changes. Um I think we all shared a frustration with the limited amount of time we had to provide feedback on the consultations. They, they were incredibly complex um, and they've given us all of the raw data, um, but that's actually where the transparency stops. So we haven't really had any indication of the prioritisation of what the OFS wants to look at. Um, there are thousands of data points and so we're not we're still not sure whether they're going to look at uh, worst offenders first, undertake a thematic approach, do random sampling. Um, and we're kind of worried, I think, as a collective group that those decisions will become highly political. Um, and I think the other important thing to kind of pull out is that the data doesn't provide the whole picture. And the OFS recognises that by saying, well, we, we're going to have ongoing conversations with you. You're able to provide narrative statements within the TEF, etc. Um, but it this seems to be an additional burden, not a replacement for the current quality management approach that we have. Um, and I think, Jim, you said in your blog, well, you should be doing all of this anyway. Um, and I can absolutely say that we are, but actually the data that we use within our quality assurance me measures are very different to the algorithmic approach that the OFS is taking. And so actually it takes a, an awful amount of brain power to understand why we think we have 40 students and the OFS thinks we have 34 or 62. And we, we're still not quite sure um, how some of those things play out. Nick, there's uh, l lots in the stuff from, you know, Guild HE, UK, the Alliance have published their stuff this week, and a lot of it does focus on the use of metrics, and you've written about this recently. 
Yes, I, I, I'm like you. I'm very struck by how the different responses from those uh, different organisations uh, have a lot of things in common. Actually, uh, and Kay referred to some of them. There's, there's. Um, it shouldn't be that hard for the OFS to go through the consultation responses and find what the sector really thinks. You know, it's not. Doesn't seem to be the case that you know Guild HE has a different view to the Russell Group, who has a different view to University Alliance or something. There seem to be um, almost unanimity. Uh, on uh, the data and of course the uh, on the well on the critiquing what it is the IFS has proposed um, and I do worry I mean one of the themes has come through is whether uh, institutions um, it, it, too much is being asked of institutions um, and as you kindly said I wrote a blog recently saying that sometimes actually you don't need very many data points to work out if your institution is succeeding or failing or even if your course is uh, succeeding or failing and I think there's a question mark both over whether um, you know the opportunity cost of all this new stuff you know what will it stop universities from doing and and this isn't there in the consultation responses what will it stop the OFS from doing does the OFS even have the capacity to do all the things it's proposed uh, and then there's a bunch of other things the OFS should perhaps be doing like promoting uh, new providers which I wrote about this week where it doesn't seem to have much capacity at all uh, and then the final point I'd like to say is, of course, one really odd thing about all of this is we don't actually know who the CEO of the OFS will be to implement all this stuff. Because Nicola Dandridge, sadly, is is off in April as an interim uh, leader in uh, Susan Lapworth. But we don't know who the permanent leader of the OFS will be to implement all this stuff. And they will want to stamp their mark on it all as well. Uh, and that's still a big unknown. Mm, interesting stuff. And, and, and Debbie, there's, uh, you know, obviously there's lots of um, similarity in the responses. Although I did think it was interesting that the Russell Group was saying on the TEF, well, you know, isn't it unfair that everything is going to be uh, benchmarked? Why don't you look at more absolute values in the TEF? And of course, that's not necessarily the view of the rest of the sector. No, but I mean, that, that is a sort of one area where, <laughs> where, where the Russell Group is sort of saying, well, you know, we, we, we think we can, uh, we think that will help us ever excellence in, in, in a more effective way and, and uh, you know the for, you know, but, but everyone agrees for example that the uh, the TEF deadline should be extended for example it, it'd be, it's impossible to turn this around and, and get it all submitted in the autumn and everyone's sort of saying spring or summer next year please um, which obviously has, then has implications for um, uh, for income, incoming students and all the rest of it and, and, I, and I suspect that'll sort of that'll sort of come out in the bush the thing that struck me was not that I mean I think I think I think the, the point about the burden of of doing all this analysis, particularly in small and specialist providers, is is really well taken. But I think also the uh, the other kind of data point that is worth pulling out is is about um, graduate jobs. And of course, we you know the sector the sector has been around this a few times and and has a lot of nervousness about uh, using uh, sock codes as just a sort of as a, as the baseline for for you know for graduate level employment. Um, and and in Gildhe's response, it was it, it was it was pointed out. Uh, quite rightly, that the SOC codes are only reviewed every 10 years. And that led to the, the proposal that OFS should actually maintain its own register of, of graduate employment. Um, and, and University Alliance, I think, said something similar, that, that basically there needs to be a kind of sector understanding of what this means that isn't necessarily the same as the national picture. And while I question how realistic that is, it does seem that it might help to mitigate some of the concerns about um, that sort of very... Uh, black and white use of metrics that, that OFS seems to be proposing and that kind of like absolute threshold. Kate, just on this, um, you know, this, uh, tell us what on the, the basis on which you might intervene thing, the prioritisation thing. Isn't it, you know, if you look at the regulatory design, isn't OFS saying, look, the whole point is that you might be weak in all sorts of different ways, in all sorts of different pockets, and we're not going to tell you in advance because what that will mean is that you focus on improvement generally. Isn't it a kind of, isn't it the whole idea that you don't get a warning on what you're going to be, which aspect you're going to be regulated on in a given year? I mean, but that's based on the the kind of Ofsted premise of we could come at any time. Um, and I think we we are aware of where we have some challenges in how our data looks. Sometimes we have reasons for that, um, depending on what region of the UK you're in um, or the type of student that um, comes to your institution. But I think the, the main thing is that actually it's really important for us to have time to reflect on the data that we have, work out a way of kind of fixing some of the problems that we are able to fix. And then for the OFS to say, well, actually, what, where's your action plan? What have you been doing? How have you been able to tackle this? And I don't necessarily see the timeline proposed giving providers the opportunity and space to think 
those things through and, and come up with those action plans. Yes, interesting. And that is interesting, Nick, isn't it? Because, you know, your, your, your blog talked about a kind of shift to some extent, perhaps away from metrics and a bit towards the qual. But the qual is fiercely contested. It's very difficult to argue that it's fair at a given moment. You know, the whole point about metrics is they're very consistent if you choose the right ones. Yeah, politicians love metrics because they are simple and uh, people on the front line tend to like them less uh, because of their flaws. Um, and of course, today, uh, we at Happy have put out a paper written by the CEO of the QAA, Vicky Stott, the, the relatively new CEO, marking their 25th anniversary, which is on quality, which really gets under the skin of the issue of quality and explains how complicated an issue it really is. And of course, that doesn't always play so well in those um, rather simplistic political debates, but is a very important part of this story. Um, th- there were some things in the responses that I sort of wondered, is it really worth spending so much uh, capital on? I mean, pretty much all the responses took issue with the, the names of the TEF categories. And, and I just sort of think it's a bit like the debate over whether it's a student loan or a graduate tax or a graduate contribution. Is it really worth all the energy? Um, I, I, I doubt politicians will particularly. I know, I know this is a consultation response to the OFS, but I suspect the politicians rather like the new categories. And I wonder whether that's a hill worth hill worth dying on. Um, but the other thing, of course, underscoring all of this is that this is just one set of the uh, consultations that are going on currently, isn't it? And we've only really talked about the OFS submission because that's the deadline this week. But then there's all the government stuff. There's all the extra, the August stuff. And some of that intersects with this OFS stuff in quite an important way. And I just and I just really hope that those conversations are properly going on between the DfE and the OFS uh, to make sure there isn't too much duplication. <laughs> yeah, when you're when you're when you're when you're being regulated simultaneously by DfE and OFS on two different versions of graduate outcomes, whether or not your TEF award is called <laughs> a silver seems a bit a bit a bit after the fact, doesn't it? <laughs> mm. Although Debbie, this is interesting. This thing because obviously you know, notwithstanding the fact that a couple of universities either on appeal or in uh, TEF two or TEF three or TEF four, what can't remember, went up a medal. Broadly, universities in the UK have their medal now. You know, those those universities' leadership are not going to want their medal to go down. And, of course, everyone's model, medal could go down because even bronze holders could go to requires improvement. People are definitely going to want to stay where they are. And, th- and ideally, if they're on silver or bronze, they're going to want to move up. And that, that, that means the whole thing has much kind of higher kind of drama and ego stakes than perhaps the old QAA institutional review process used to have. Well, I, yeah, I think this is sort of, there's an interesting intersection with, um, with Vicky's paper on quality, um, for Happy this morning. Cause I mean, she, she, she is sort of saying that if you want, if you want to look at quality in the round, you have to really understand what it is that you're doing that causes things to happen not just kind of uh you know report whether or not they're happening i think is, is essentially the thrust of her paper so she talks about assurance which talks about if um you know the, the, the learning is all in place and that 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 is kind of maximizing the chances that students will get the award which of course requires a bit of underpinning analysis um and, and likewise quality enhancement which is where the tef comes in uh which which is supposed to be kind of being able to continuously improve and i think the part i mean part of the kind of problem with the idea of quality enhancement has always been that um when you when you when you describe it as quality enhancement and continuous improvement you you can sort of see a trajectory uh with no with no particular endpoint. of course in the tef there is an endpoint which is tef gold um and i'm pretty sure that the, the politics of having you know, as lots and lots of, I think, you know, I think we've probably got a grade inflation problem where, you know, where it actually what we want to see is universities continuously improving, but they can't all get golds. So, uh, I, I, you know, I suspect it, there's, there's always going to be that kind of sense of, of kind of relative assessment um, across the piece. And, and yes, and, and there is going to be quite, quite a lot of drama around that. It's also worth adding, I think, that um, it's a requires improvement category that universities have the most b- bother with. And their kind of argument, which I think is a legitimate one, um, albeit not one that will find a lot of favour, I suspect, is, is that if you if the point of the TEF is to uh, express quality above the baseline, then having a requires improvement category doesn't. doesn't yeah, it work. implies <laughs> that you're below the baseline, exactly, doesn't it? Because yeah, you require yeah. so, improvement. So, yeah, so yeah, it yeah. kind of cre- creates creates a sort of layer of confusion. Um, but if you know, if if essentially you've got policymakers that are determined to say there are some, you know, you know, we 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 want there to be a sense that this is not a diverse sector that is doing lots of different things, all all in ways that are excellent. Which of course the sector would love to be the consensus. They're saying this is a diverse sector that's doing lots of different things, some of which are excellent, some of which are less excellent. People need to know which which is which, um, and that is essentially the kind of thrust. Of, uh, of this policy, uh, you know, so we can identify excellence, but we also do need to identify where where it's not happening. 
Um, and that is hard for the sector to, 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 to get on board with for obvious reasons. There's also a lot of kind of indiscrepancies, I suppose, in the way in which we're, we're trying to frame TEF. So is it an enhancement tool to judge providers and to incentivise improvement? Or is it a tool to inform student choice? And those two things are ever so slightly different. Mm. Um, and I mean, if we think about kind of sector order, we have, and Vicky details it in great detail in her um, piece that we we have academic standards that run through all of our providers regardless of who they are where they are in the country but we also have a prestige order in the sector and the TEF is kind of also trying to force that prestige and elitism into the system and there there just seems to be a kind of a disjuncture between what we want the TEF to be and what will actually turn out to look like to the public. I, I think that's true but of course the original conception of the TEF, the reason, for example, that, you know, my old boss, David Willits, at first floated the idea of this, was was the opposite of embedding prestige and elitism. It was actually to try to show the pockets of excellence that people did not realise were pockets of excellence. And it was meant to shake up the whole the whole system. Um, and I, I think some of the underlying tensions Kate just brought out really, really well. But it certainly wasn't the underlying original intention of of, of, of having a, a, a policy tool of this sort. And Debbie, just before we move off all of this, the uh, um, OFS has launched a review of blended learning uh, this week. Yeah, speak, speaking of quality. Yes, yeah, so the uh, announcement this, mor- uh, this morning it was that uh, OFS is launching a review, and it will be that will be chaired by uh, Susan Orr, who is a uh, Pro Vice Chancellor for Teaching and Learning at York St John University, um, and uh, is, is going to be Pro Vice Chancellor uh, at De Montfort. Uh, so it's so it's it's, it's a sort of o, I guess o, OFS stewarded review, but 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 led from within the sector, which I think will be welcome news. Um, and but it, but but it is really tapping into this. Idea that post-pandemic universities are doing things with blended learning. Students may or may not be very happy with. In some cases, um, in some cases, of course, there might be some really excellent practice that is worth sharing, um, and uh, you know, and, th- and that this requires kind of a, a, some some level of kind of regulatory uh, in insight, if if not necessarily input at this stage. And my feeling is is it's sort of understandable because there's been a lot of chatter about you know the return to in-person teaching and whether universities are are doing that to a sufficient extent and and all the rest of it. I do think from my own conversations with universities and from what I've seen kind of this year in the sector is that it's really it's really premature actually that um it's, you know, it seems to me to be very unfair not to give universities the space they need to really learn the lessons of the pandemic, to think about what that future of learning and teaching looks like. I don't think, you know, the, the sort of the barely six months that um, that we've had in this academic year is nearly enough for universities to say kind of categorically and coherently, this is what we're doing with blended learning. So, and having to do that because the regulator is asking the question. It, it, it's kind of weird, isn't it? It's kind of problematic to me. It's kind of too late to address the concerns of students today and it's too early to, to, yeah. to, to tell whether whether you know what that next normal will look like and, and how it can be done effectively yeah it, it yes it doesn't it it, it seems ill-timed to me and, and particularly I think we've talked about all the other things that are going on in the sector right now and I think you know I think there's probably a case for saying where have we got to um but I just don't think that case is right now. Although I don't know if you're a, if, if if you're in the DFE press office, it's probably easier to say, "Well, my regulator has commissioned a review of all this," than it is to say, "Well, Michelle is phoning the vice chancellors where there's still blended learning right. happening." So, do you know what I mean? It's that it's, maybe, it's that thing you can point to, isn't it, to say, "Well, we, you know, we're doing something." And and, may, and maybe of course, uh, you know, Susan comes out with some really really interesting stuff. But it, but I mean, as DK pointed out on the site this morning, of course, Michael Barber did his gravity assist just last year, so. You know, we, we do already know quite a lot. And of course, you know, JISC exists and has been doing thinking about the future of learning and teaching as well. So we do already know quite a lot about what works in, in digitally enhanced learning and teaching. Um, and some of this is about the, that process of implementation, about rolling out across different subject areas. I'm sure that Susan will do a really great job of, of coming up with some really interesting examples of where people are doing interesting stuff. It's just... Can I just say, this is another example of where the press release has a very different tone to what we think the work might actually look like. Because it feels <laughs> like it's in... like. If I had- pound. Yeah, blended learning is bad. We're going to do a review is what it sounds like, but in reality Susan is going to look at all the positives of how that has unlocked other types of educational opportunities for all students including actually disabled students who have had a significant uplift in their accessibility. Um 
and also for us in particular, kind of being able to access guest lecturers across the world has been incredibly helpful for our students and massively enriched their experiences. So, you know, it isn't all bad, but the way these things are framed are just to grab headlines. But Nick, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it feels like, when I, when I read it, when, when we got the uh, press release yesterday, it feels like a kind of old hefty buffer roll thing, this, where... <laughs> Yes. Um, well, I think, you know, the, we still, the OFS still is trying to do lots of different things. And um, I think it will settle down in time. I think the new CEOs, I've already said, will have their own priorities. They'll overlay on top of that. Um, I mean, I always remember, I've written about this on the wonky side before, that uh, the famous thing Les Ebden once said to me when he was director of Fair Access, and uh, 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 he was asked, um, you know, what will the OFS really do when it is set up? And he said, I'll tell you exactly what it will do. I know exactly what it will do. And we were on tenterhooks to find out. And he said, it will do whatever the government of the day wants it to do. And there is an element of that. There is an element of that, uh, both in its uh, 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 consideration of blended learning and in lots of the other things it's doing. But then there's also an element of duplication with other things the DfE are doing. So I think this whole landscape hasn't yet fully settled down. Right, great. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Nick Cartwright, and I've written a blog for 1KHE on the importance of data. I promise that's more exciting than it sounds. I'm as turned off by a spreadsheet as the next person, but I'm passionate about challenging the systemic barriers that disadvantage some of our students. I believe that inclusive practice must be data-led, so I asked for some of that data. Specifically, I sent an FOI request to 132 UK universities, asking them about the ethnicity of the students who were subjected to disciplinary action. What I found out, or more accurately what I didn't find out, demonstrates that behind a facade of decolonising the curriculum, most universities are doing very little to understand the extent of discrimination, let alone to start remedying it. My findings are surprising and somewhat depressing. It's a necessary read for anyone serious about making higher education inclusive. Now, you might remember that back in 2020, HEPI published a report on growing demand for HE in the coming decade. And this week on the site, we've been thinking about how to meet that demand. Debbie? Uh, right. Well, I mean, how you how you feel about this debate, I think, very much depends on what angle you come from it. And we've sort of been trying to come at it from multiple angles in the course of the week, which I will try and sum up succinctly as best I can. Um Mindful, I think. So there's a few, there's a few things going on in the sector. One, one, as, as you pointed out, it, you know, we've, we've known for some time that over the course of this decade, the number of 18 to 19 year olds in the overall population is going to increase. Add to that the impact of what we hope will be the impact of the lifelong loan entitlement, which will be to create new opportunities for people to enter higher education uh, later in life and, and, and throughout their lives. Um, and what you see is, is, is a potentially kind of enorm, enormous demand for HE. Um, at the same time, of course, we've seen the, the freezing of the undergraduate fee um, and, 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 and the kind of consequence of that. And one of the questions that we're asking this week, and I think particularly in light of DfE proposals to think about introducing some kind of student number control. Now, nobody's saying let's have a universal student number control you know, at, at sector wide. And we're not even necessarily saying that quality is the best way to even think about that. But we are saying, do, do we still want that kind of open choice uh, market model uh, to drive where higher education is delivered and how it's delivered and what is delivered and all the rest of it? Or do we need to think about options for um, operating a more kind of planned system? So we had a few things inside, and DK sort of been spearheading this um, because this is something he's been thinking about for a while. Um, and he's sort of quest questioning um, whether the sector needs to be very um, opposed to student number controls, or whether we think about whether we think we can think about student number controls in different ways. But also, if we were to think about a more planned system, one of the one of, one of DK's arguments is that if you if you kind of just say this is entirely driven by student choice, um, what you then get is popular providers expanding kind of indefinitely, and 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 less popular, I guess, in in uh, in scare quotes. Providers, providers going to kind of deli deliver deliver some of the perhaps quite strategically important courses in, in strategically important parts of the country, um, and and a government that 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 can sort of renege on its on its on its duty to say, well, actually, we need more providers in different parts of the country. He sort of said, well, if you actually look at where the demographic growth is and where the cold spots are in the country, could we could we kind of make draw conclusions at a very high level about maybe where we might like to see some new universities? So I think 
there's many there's many ways into this conversation and certainly i think the idea of student number controls is obviously uh it's it's it's, it's a quite a tense one for the sector because you know we've, we've all sort of seen the the kind of consequence of, of doing that in a in a in a, in a very fun sort of, you know, flat universalising way and, and sort of saying, no, some people can't come into higher education. But they are on the table. They've been, they've been mooted by, by DfE. And so we think, we think the conversation is worthy, worthy of, of having. Mm. Nick, so there's a couple of things going on here, isn't there? There's um, growing demand. Do we meet that demand? And then if we meet the demand, do we let the market work out where that demand should be kind of squirted? Or do we let uh, government and regulators decide? And they're, they're tricky issues. Well, they are, but I do have a pretty profound disagreement with uh, the, the the wonky approach on this. Um, uh, I mean, Debbie, for example, says uh, no one is calling for a universal number cap, just sort of localised number caps. But lots of localised number caps add up to a universal number cap. You know, the removal of student number caps a few years ago was the removal both of institutional student number caps and therefore the removal of a macro number cap over the sector as a whole. And the way I see it is we are absolutely crazy to do what we're doing, which is effectively giving politicians a loaded gun to shoot ourselves with, because that is what student number caps do. Politicians want, as we know, to limit the costs of the system. They think some of them, too many people go to higher education. And therefore, if we ourselves lobby for a student number cap, as the sector did in the summer of 2020, wrongly, uh, in my view, we are we are giving them a tool to beat us uh, with. Um, and because of the demographics, and by the way, the demographics are not the biggest driver. The demographics are quite a small driver. The biggest driver is the proportion of however any however many 18-year-olds you've got leave school with the qualifications and the aspiration and the desire uh, 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 and the aptitude to go to higher education. That's the biggest driver. It's been growing for decades, and I think it will continue to grow. So it seems completely the wrong moment to start planning, because because there's so many more students coming our way that actually, you know, almost everybody could benefit. Um, and it's not a black and white conversation, this. And it sometimes comes across as a black and white conversation. You know, I wrote a piece for the Campaign for Learning earlier this week saying maybe we need some pu- public capital spending to build new institutions in those parts of the country that could really benefit uh, from them. Um, I don't, my one other disagreement with David Kernahan's piece was he, he, his calculation of where new institutions should be seemed, unless I've misunderstood it, seemed to assume that everybody would study locally. And the system we have is not particularly like that. Lots of people like to travel to study away from where they grew up. And, and I wouldn't want to lose that in our pla- in any planning that does happen for the future. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that, I think that is, that is, a, that is a, a point. But then also if the, if the goal, if the overall goal is to expand uh, access for those who wouldn't otherwise have it, then you probably are looking at a larger proportion of people studying locally. Just, just be, you know, by dint, by dint, by dint of the kind of type of people that they are. Not that we should ever jump to that conclusion, but certainly I think it, in terms, in terms of kind of, you know, putting a finger in the air, I think it, that that can quite help to be taken into account. Okay, but Kate, here's a question, right? So I was at Falmouth Uni the other day. Falmouth are in membership of Guild HE, right? Great, great university, you know, huge transformational effects on the kind of, you know, the local area, the seaside town. And I was thinking when I was there, okay, this is interesting. Let's imagine that we took a view, and certainly there are some people locally that take this view, that UEA is now too big in Norwich, but there is no higher education and none of those kind of economic and social impacts in Great Yarmouth, you know, three quarters of an hour down the road. If we wanted to respond to the idea that there are too many students in Norwich and not enough students in Great Yarmouth, what should we do? I think it goes back to to Nick's point really about investment um, and really thinking strategically about what the skills needs of the local region is um, and being able to prime funding into those areas and I think that one of the things that worries me about going back to what we were saying earlier about quality is that actually it takes a while for an area to change um, the jobs that are available in that region and actually um, Norwich University Arts have been doing a whole bunch of work in that region kind of embedding kind of creative um, delivery within all of the different industries that are in East Anglia. Um, but it takes a while for that data to um, to become apparent in our data set. So 
I think the, the problem that we've got is that, yes, we do want to level up places. We do want to provide more provision, um, but we don't necessarily know whether that's going to work or not. And the risks that we have around bidding for money to put campuses in cold spots means that we're kind of there is too much risk in the system of, as to whether it will fail or not. Interesting. And and, and Nick, the, the, the other aspect of this, I guess, that certainly me and you have clashed about on Twitter before is the, the, the kind of over recruitment and under recruitment thing and it, and it is real i mean you know the national audit office have kind of picked up that there's a danger of over and under recruitment and and i guess you, you know your position is that you know it's important that um people aren't artificially prevented from taking on talented students and students are able to choose the universities they want to study at right yes but it's a bit deeper than that as well it's that when you have number controls the middle classes still know the rules of the game the middle classes will still do everything they can to get their kids into the universities that give them the most cv points and give them uh, you know they know how to play the game what number caps do is they have a bit the biggest impact on the more marginal students um, and that's why the proudest thing i'm uh, the thing i'm proudest to have done in my entire career is to have been a very small cog in the removal of student number caps and that's because uh, I was convinced by by lots of people uh, that uh, the best way to widen access to education is to have no limits, because otherwise the middle classes will learn the rules of the game and win. You know, I'm middle class. I, you know, I'll do the same for my kids. I'm not criticising middle class people. I'm saying I want other people to have the same advantages the middle class people have historically had. But isn't the argument that if you don't have any controls, then the over-recruitment in more elite universities will subsequently also lead to under-recruitment in the sort of universities where less advantaged students cluster, and then they suffer? Yeah, but there's an element of... uh nonsense about this whole debate you know dk's piece earlier in the week said look we're not calling for tight number caps we're just saying that if number caps were to be reduced they could be introduced like this with big tolerance bands and therefore universities could still grow pretty significantly etc etc and then you end up thinking well hang on so you're saying we let's consider imposing a massive wave of bureaucracy that might limit people getting the education they want and need um with fairly similar result, because even with a liberal, very liberal number cap, expansion still allowed. And, uh, you know, one of the things we clashed on on Twitter, when I went to university in the early 1990s, uh, you know, <laughs> there were people living in unsuitable accommodation because universities had over-recruited. I had 700 people on my subsidiary course, and the largest lecture hall in Manchester was a, had about 450 seats. You know, so this idea that... Um, uh, you know, it's black and white that everybody will get the perfect fit if there's a number cap and, 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 and the opposite happens if there's no number cap. It just doesn't work. The number cap environment wasn't as good as is being pretended. And yes, there are problems with the current environment with no number caps. But I just, I just find it very hard as someone who works in education to think we should ever block anybody from meeting their aspiration if their aspiration is to go to uea rather than an institution in gray yarmouth they should have that opportunity to do so and i, f I feel that uh, strongly and i feel it as a parent and i feel it as someone who's spent most of my life in education and i think uh, it i think there are policy consequences to that debbie it strikes me that there's a tension here between um, number controls if you're committed to kind of meeting demand and expansion that are done in a way that is, you know, kind of high quality and, you know, regenerates areas and so on. And then, you know, the problem with having number controls if you're not committed to that, which kind of generates then inequalities and access problems and so on. There's, it's, and it's, we can't ignore the fact that it, isn't it partly about which government might introduce number controls? Do you know what I mean? I think, yeah, and I, and I really do, I really do kind of feel, um, like your sort of visceral <laughs> kind of response here. Because of course, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the idea of, of someone sort of wanting to go to university and not being able to is, is, you know, of course we, of course we, we have a visceral response to that. Um, and I think, yeah, Jim's right to sort of say this is, yeah, if, if you just sort of said our policy is number controls, Purely, essentially, for um, you know, in, in in order to achieve uh, you know management of costs, that you know that 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 would would absolutely be the consequence. I think, and 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 I think perhaps it's a question about planning about and, and about who 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 is trusted to plan and and about how much the extent to which it matters um, at an individual level 
that this the, the, you know the, the very specific choice of university because remember of course we often dealing with an you know a seven you know in, in our minds we're often dealing with an 18 to 19 year old cohort who are you know school or college leavers who are moving to the next stage of their lives that is a very you know that is a very important time for anybody and yes and, and not getting to go to the university of your choice and not not getting to kind of have the experience that you want would you know would be, would be really kind of I guess would be genuinely tragic for for that individual. But again, if we're talking about people coming from the workplace, people coming back, you know, immature, if we're talking about the broader benefits that might be brought to regions um, and the kind of and sorts of investment that that that, that might ensue. Um, so I'm thinking about what kinds of courses are are made available or or, or not in in different different parts of the country. I mean, this is not very far from the from the government's leveling up agenda, um, and I think there is. You know, it may just it may just come down to, I suppose, the extent to which you yeah, you, tr you you trust the government to kind of see these things in the round rather than to kind of make um, you know as you, you talk about giving policymakers a loaded gun and it's a loaded gun and I can see that you know, with with the current set of policymakers that 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 it, that it would absolutely feel that way. I don't know if if you feel that that would be the case on, on, under under all circumstances, um, but. You know, I, you know, I can see, I can see, I can see, I can, I can see the case. I, I, I could just also see an environment when it, it could, you know, it, you know, it, 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 it could just be a bit more organised. But this is a good question, Nick. So, so it, it, as a taxpayer, I would like the government to be interested in what people are studying and where they're studying it, because where they're studying it brings some money to that area. So, so to some extent, I guess my question would be: How do we sensibly? represent that interest that kind of taxpayer government interest because we have to kind of accept that there is a real interest there right yeah look look i live my my local uh town uh, is ellsbury my local big town is ellsbury which was recently voted by the people who live in ellsbury as the worst place in the uk to live uh and uh, my son is a school in ellsbury and uh i would love Ellsbury to be a place where the local people are proud of. And I rather suspect one of the ways in which Ellsbury could be a place uh, where the local people are more proud of is by big expansion, for example, of Bucks New University that has a very small uh, footprint in Ellsbury. Uh, and that would be wonderful for Ellsbury, it'd be wonderful for local people, it'd be wonderful, wonderful for our uh, county as well. But I don't want to force people to go and study in Ellsbury if that's not what they want to do. And that's where I think it does ultimately, and I think Debbie was hinting at this, comes down a little bit to your philosophical outlook on life. And I think in the end, people's individual educational choices, because people know best what's uh, best for their own lives, are probably a bit more important than protecting the interests of institutions. Um, but I think a really interesting intervention in this debate, which is maybe a part of the answer to your question, is the one by Mike Ratcliffe, you know, who's a brilliant historian of our sector, as well as working within it. And his uh, writing about university centres that already exist in many of the places that could really benefit from having a fully fledged university is a very interesting sort of halfway house. You know, we already have institutions in some of these places that have had in the past public support. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, as I say, I'm not saying we shouldn't invest capital spending in building nice campuses in places that would really benefit from them. But I am reluctant about forcing people who don't particularly want to study there and who therefore may have a less good experience. We know people who don't get their first choice of university are more likely to drop out for example, I just don't think that is uh, is a responsible thing to do. Isn't that essentially what the government is saying? Is is that some people aren't making the best choices for themselves? And I think you, you know you can absolutely ideologically disagree with the government's position, but you know isn't isn't that essentially what the government is saying? That, that if you look at some student outcomes, they're not getting the quality they deserve. They're not getting the you know they're they're not recouping their investment. And you can absolutely at every level you know disagree with that argument. But I think it's something that. You know, we have we have to sort of confront um, and, and try and kind of give a response to as a sector that doesn't isn't just about sort of saying, well, those people should be in a different course or they should be in they should go to FE, which seems to be what the government sort of broad kind of broad broad brush analysis is. That's based on a premise that um, we're only measuring where a student ends up 15 months after they've graduated and a census model so doesn't take into account that maybe the week before they were doing something different. I think what we need to do is really tackle what Robin set out in 1963 of measuring the value of education much wider than just the specific job that the person is in at that specific place in time. And I think that leads me to a couple of questions around number controls for me, which is what 
what are we controlling? Are we controlling all provision or are we just controlling level six? Are we controlling specific subjects because we think that you should only do a degree in the job that you then want to go into? Or is there a wider benefit of studying a subject that you enjoy at university, which then leads you to kind of broader skill sets which you can then take to employers to help innovation and I think that we haven't really squared those circles and I don't think there is one answer and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about that's why there's politics in these decisions and it's not just about kind of should we have a restricted market or an unrestricted one. And Nick, one other question. So <clears throat> obviously over the past dec- decade or so, one way to look at it is that students have been able to exercise their choice and it's student demand that has kind of shaped the sector, shaped provision and so on. But it's not quite that simple, is it? Because there's no doubt that there's evidence that providers have found it easier to offer more places, much more supply in cheaper to teach subject areas. And, 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 and if it's the case, therefore, that some students are fairly ambivalent about what they go and study have ended up studying stuff that we would prefer they'd studied something else you know how do you influence the subject choice that people make without just you know sticking up some posters or encouraging them to apply to be an engineer well look those are those are fair points i would still uh uh think uh, young people uh if we're talking mainly young school leavers here know best what's uh best for them than than i do um but I, I'm a huge fan of transparency and information. And of course, you and I, Jim, once worked on a paper called Where Do Tuition Fees Really Go? Uh, and you're absolutely right that they don't go on the same things for different courses. And universities have uh, an interest in filling some courses uh, to a greater degree than than others. And let's have that debate. You know, I, I think we need to, an even greater spotlight than has already been shone on uh, cross subsidies in universities, on university incentives. Um, but I think, as I say, that's the way I would uh, approach this issue with a with a sort of spotlight uh, on the numbers and on transparency and on better information for young people you know and if if it's likely that certain courses and more prestigious universities are over full and the quality of the student experience has taken a really big knock or the travel to uh, the campus is too far because people are being made to live in uh, distant cities you know let's get that out there let's tell young people that that's the way to discourage them from going to places that have over full not putting artificial limits on them now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan welcome to yes but does it correlate the podcast segment that always controls numbers you might have spotted i've been looking at provider level growth in full-time undergraduate uk domiciled first-year students on the site recently I was wondering if there was any relationship between the four years of growth here and growth in the perennially fascinating number of car parking spaces at a university over those same four years. Does a dash for growth mean a dearth of campus parking? Does it correlate? Oh, I love it. I, I would say no, they don't. I mean, I think I have a pretty much 100% failure rate <coughs> on this uh, do they correlate question that I've been on before. But I would say no, they don't correlate because... The expansions of students has been very rapid in many instances. And of course, I would hope that with integrated transport strategies and uh, better cycle lanes and and better bus services and stuff, which occasionally happen, uh, but not in my part of the world, uh, that actually people are being discouraged out of cars. Uh, So I hope, I, I don't think they correlate and I hope they don't correlate. I think it would go against the institution's sustainability strategy to want to promote car parking um, and in fact lots of universities are working in collaboration with their councils to put in park and rides and, and other things to kind of support that wider infrastructure so you're not reliant on on vehicles Yes, they correlate really strongly. And the reason is, is because universities up and down the country are building car parks. And that's what's, that's what's happening. And you heard it here first. <laughs> and the answer is no. R squared doesn't even reach significance. And I can only conclude that parking is not a primary consideration in student recruitment. Data is from HESA for the four years, including 2016 to 17 and 2019 to 20. The usual caveats apply to estates coverage, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. 
And finally, two new reports on disabled students out this week. One on the operation of the Disabled Students Allowance and one on access improvements during the pandemic. Nick, uh, what do we need to know? Well, uh, let me focus on particularly the one about disabled students during the pandemic, because I think it's a brilliant report. I think it's uh, really interesting. It starts by saying we need to listen to disabled students, and that is therefore what the 50 plus pages then do. You know, they really tell you the experience of disabled students during the during the pandemic with, you know, a mixed bag. You know, some things have actually worked quite well for disabled students during the pandemic uh, and some things have worked uh, very uh, badly. Um, it gets to the heart, even the title of the report, which is Going Back is Not a Choice, gets to the heart of, I think, the single most important question about the pandemic and education, which is what changes will turn out to be temporary and what changes will turn out to be permanent. Um, and uh, it goes back a little bit to some of the conversation we were having earlier about blended uh, learning, for example, which can work very, very well for uh, disabled students. Um, it's also a really nicely produced report, by the way. I mean, most reports in higher education policy are not in line with the RNIB uh, rules for good uh, reports for even non-partially sighted people. So even people you know, who don't have problems with their eyesight, um, most AG reports are, are not in line with the RNIB. Uh, and this report is a very accessible report, nicely produced, and it's a model for how we should produce policy reports in uh, my view. Um, my only slight sort of um, thing I'd flag is they go quite big, certainly in the media coverage, went quite big on the proportion of disabled students who said, uh, you know, they regretted, you know, they might drop out, they regretted doing their course, etc. And I always take opinion poll results of students uh, like that with a huge pinch of salt because how people say they behave in opinion polls is very different to how people typically behave you know we saw that when the higher tuition fees came in for example and everyone said that stopped learning and, and it didn't happen um the, the other uh, interesting angle of the report is it does look at the pressures on staff as well i mean there's some mentions of disabled staff but also the pressures on staff who are trying to help disabled students and how much uh, a, a, an institution really needs to think about whether they're resourcing the staff that work with disabled students and their teams properly to make sure disabled students can have the sort of inclusive learning experiences they deserve just as much as every other as every other student but it's a really good report and i do urge people to look at yeah and and full full disclosure here I, I i spoke at the launch the other day and you know one of the most impressive reports i've read in a in a long time i think kate one of the things i said at the launch was that, that there's a sense that when the pandemic kicked off and everyone did the kind of emergency pivot that it was something of a surprise to many institutions how much of what they did in the pivot was benefiting disabled students and then there's a sense of a surprise that now a lot of institutions have kind of swung back to in-person delivery that lots of disabled students aren't very very happy. But there's a problem with that surprise, isn't there? Because the whole point of the legislation is that we're supposed to anticipate the needs of disabled students. That's true. But um, I think what planners and um, academic practitioners are looking at is kind of students in the round. And I, and I think some of the things that are highlighted in the report certainly show that there is no one size fits all. And even for students with different disabilities, they have different needs and requirements. And I think it's quite um, concerning actually that we at the moment I mean we've been talking about funding pressures all the way through this but we're continually squeezed in trying to provide a universal student experience and we do have to make things bespoke for certain students which is why it's really important that we fix some of the structural challenges with DSA in particular. Yes Debbie the DSA stuff briefly. Yeah there's a there's a common theme here I think which so what the you know there's long-standing criticism of uh, the implementation of Disabled Students Alliance which has been coordinated um for the student loans company which is, is is essentially the sort of enormous administrative burden it puts on disabled students to 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 um apply for and, and access their their disabled students alliance and there's a really good piece um on the site this week by the um uh by a policy officer from thomas pocklington trust which advocates for uh for partially sighted and, and blind people kind of art articulating the kind of all of the kind of particular challenges and the student loans company has come out and said um there are there are going to be reforms to the procurement process there will be a single point of contact there will be, be you know the administrative burden will be will, will, will be smoothed out but i think that does um link quite closely to the uh disabled disabled uk report because it just sort of 
there, there just needs to be that pivot, pivot, doesn't there? And I think I, you know, I appreciate Kate's point about one size doesn't fit all, and you do need to kind of engage with the student about what their needs are. But you can't make the student responsible for for causing those things to be to be put in place. And I think there's still that kind of sense of well, you know, you've got to kind of articulate this, you've got to kind of fill in the paperwork, you've got to tell us. Um, and if and you know, and that is putting you know an awful lot of burden on someone who is already you know who already may have may have various accessibility needs, and who already may have particular kind of challenges that make it harder for them to access. And one of the consequences of that that we found in our recently published research on belonging was that it was you know consistently throughout all the things that we looked at was it was disabled students were saying that they felt lower academic confidence, that they felt uh, less of a sense of belonging, that they felt less included in their courses. Um, and I think until there is that pivot that says this is something that we. Um, that we have, you know, that 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 we don't sort of we we don't sort of put we don't we don't place that burden on the shoulders of students, um, you know, appreci appreciating the, the the challenges of 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 getting to that point, um, you know, we will we will continue to see this sort of sense that that disabled students are not fully you know full participants in 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 student life. And Nick, it's interesting this, isn't it? Because because part of what I said out the back of the report launch was we do have lots of structures and a culture in HE where we look at these days, we look at outcomes and then we'll say, well, the outcomes are different for certain groups. And then we'll think about how we might improve them over time. But actually, you know, it's not as if we are gently trying to improve outcomes on this one. Actually, a lot of the things in the report suggest that people just aren't compliant with the law. And, and that suggests that we need to do something different in the way that we kind of govern some of this stuff, doesn't it? Well, yes, uh, I think it. I think it absolutely does. I think what this report does is it adds to a pretty big evidence base now that then uh, means everything you've just said is true. I mean, I, I I want to hear it from the voice of disabled students themselves, and that's of course what this report captures. So, so I think you know it, it's like we've got the evidence. Now we need to act even more than we've acted in the past. And I, but I think there are two challenges with that we need to be open and honest about one is uh the resource constraints on universities in an environment where inflation's what seven percent or you know it's bouncing up and down around there isn't it and when uh certainly for home students uh the fee is uh fixed so we do need to think about um you know asking universities to do more has a cost associated with it and i think it's important the policymakers understand that the other thing i mean on dsa and i saw this when i was in whitehall it's one of those public policies that are incredibly uh, important um, but get very little focus um, and that's why uh, sometimes um, things don't always go right in that area of policy you know any tweak to headline tuition fees or um, you know something to do with Oxbridge will always be on the front pages tweaks and things that go wrong on DSA just don't get the same level of public interest and that is therefore a challenge in making sure public policy works well. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Nick, Kate, Debbie, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. 